Hello and welcome to The Menu, Monocle Radio's food and drink programme. I'm Tom Edwards. Today, we'll be introducing a very new and very exciting voice to The Menu. Also on the programme, we'll head to Singapore with our correspondent, Naomi Shu Elegant, to meet the head bartender at renowned cocktail bar Atlas. Six years later, who knew I'm not a head bartender at Atlas? And it's still a very surreal moment. Like Every time I retell this story, I just still cannot believe it like that was my journey plus we'll hear from gregory scruggs who's on orcas island to discover the culinary delights of matia kitchen things like tomatoes and pork chops and turnips and radishes i remember so many times in my first few years here thinking i've never really eaten a tomato before (laughs) all that ahead here on the menu on monocle radio A warm welcome to this very special edition of the menu. Keen listeners will know that Marco Sippi was the steward of this programme, the custodian of the menu for definitely 10 years or so. But today, drumroll, we have a new host for you to meet, listeners around the world, the new host of the menu. It's my great pleasure to welcome her to her own (laughs) programme. It's Chiara Rimella. Chiara, welcome. I am beyond delighted (laughs) to be here. Now, listen, this is highly exciting. You are the new host. Big Sammy Moccasins to fill. The big man, (laughs) the champ, Marcus Hippie. He's moved on to past his new. But you're, I'm sure, going to be the perfect host because you have a deep understanding of food and drink. And not just from your motherland, but from a, a a, a wider region. But how are you feeling about being the the captain of the good ship menu going forwards. Well, stepping into my Italian leather brogues (laughs) and and putting the moccasins aside. Oh, of course, very big shoes to fill. Finnish size feet. Literally. He did have big feet, as well as a big (laughs) Um, personality. But one thing that listeners of Monocle might not know, because I used to recover a bit of a more of a cultural persona here at Monocle, is that I eat happily a lot (laughs) frequently with much, much gusto. So it is an absolute delight to be able to finally indulge my stomach in this way because eating is one of the great passions of my life. It genuinely is. Recently, a friend of mine asked me to list the five true joys of my existence. And she started off reeling hers and smelling flowers and going for a run. And I listed eating out at number one. And then I kind of stopped because I was like, what else is there? This is it. Well, let me ask you, of course, our listeners will know your Italian heritage. It's a bit like the book, you know, Never Trust the Skinny Italian Chef. Are there any Italians anywhere within or without Italy that don't have that cultural attachment to food, that love, not just of Italian food, but a curiosity also about other foods? It, it's a cliche, perhaps, but like many cliches, it's rooted in truth. I've never met any Italians that aren't foodies. Are there any? I've never met any. I honestly have to say that for me, for us, growing up, life, 
everyday life is so intrinsically connected to food that it's impossible to think of a way in which it wouldn't imprint you, like in a kind of Lorenzian way since the moment you are born. Because our life revolves around food, it's so funny when you go to Italy, most frequently if you overhear somebody talking on the phone on the street, they're either complaining about something or talking about their next meal, what they're going to go buy, what they're going to cook. I find myself very frequently thinking about my next meal or talking about my next meal whilst I'm having the preceding meal. It never stops. It's just like the thing that punctuates your life. And it really goes to the core of Italian identity, to my identity. I mean, again, this is a bit of a cliche, but it is so true of Italians. And it's definitely true of my personal history. Your grandmother's food just remains in your kind of subconscious memory for the rest of your life and nothing will ever come close to being as good as that. So from the moment I tasted my grandmother's lasagna or her tallarin, that was it. I was just you know, marked for life. I was going to ask you about the like nonna's uh, pasta. You obviously have been in the UK for a very long time. You're very well travelled. When you engage with Italian food here in the UK or in your travels, do you have to kind of separate that off from what would happen back home and what happens here? Is it kind of good for London? And how does it work when you choose spots? Do you steer clear of these slightly kind of ersatz authentic in inverted commas Italians? Do you like it when it's Italian food, but with an Anglo spin, does that make you wince? How, how do you sort of engage with your food when you're interacting with it internationally? I'm a very different eater in Italy than I am in London. In Italy, I'm very much keen for either very traditional places, and there's a lot of them, uh, or places that are trying to do Italian food in a modern way that is interesting, which is happening increasingly over the last few years. I love eating in London, and I'm a very different eater here uh, because I'm so much more of a open-minded eater here. I eat Italian in London and I tend to prefer anglicised versions of it because I'm not trying to replicate the experience that I know and that I'll be comparing it unjustly to. But I have a voracious approach to eating in London as well in the sense that I make a point of almost always trying a place once and then always trying somewhere new. I hardly ever go back to the same spot apart from a very, very few select places that have some sort of spot in my heart. They don't necessarily need to be the places where I've had the best meals in terms of the quality of the food, but just places that occupy that kind of spot in your heart that has got to do with hospitality as well as it does with the dish itself. Just places where you feel good and you know you can rely on, you can go back. And there's a few of those in my little black book. But other than that, in London, it's very much like a constant voyage of discovery. And the amazing thing about London is that I am able to do that. I go out eating around three times a week. It is what I blow most of my income on. And I am able to essentially do that almost never repeating the same place I eat at because we're in London and this is so exciting. And I'm thankful to Monocle because I've been able to travel the world and eat my way through it. (laughs) But it is one of the most incredible ways of discovering a place. And one of my favourite places in the world is Singapore because of that, because you go to Singapore and suddenly in this tiny little island, you can experience some of the best Asian food 
of the continent all concentrated in a small little kind of dot. So it's very efficient. And I was able to kind of get my head around a lot of dishes. And, but, you know, again, the way that you eat changes depending on where you are. And I love eating on my own. And I've eaten on my own a lot on travels. I love the way that you can eat on your own in Japan. I love the different way that you can eat on your own in Sweden. I love how in some places it's really hard to eat on your own. And so you end up chatting to someone because people will just involve you into somewhere. There's such a an element of exhilarating discovery to food and of community, of connection to people. It's just the best thing in the world. Well, I think you've done a rather good job, Yara, at marking our <laughs> listener's card. In terms of the direction of travel for the menu, so many of those, that X factor about what makes a great venue, as you said, it's not just the food, it's not just the ambience, but it is that strange combination. And I guess that's what the menu exists to consider and ruminate upon each week so credentials approved i think our listeners <laughs> did are i pass in, the test our listeners are in did i sound sufficiently passionate I, about I, the topic i think so and we'll even be heading to singapore as i mentioned uh, right at the top just on a couple of specific places because i don't want to keep things purely in generalities you mentioned obviously london but back home maybe in torino in other places do you have one or two of those favorite spots again just so listeners maybe get a sense of what ticks the right boxes for chiara Rinella. For a modern Italian that has an Anglo spin in London, I like Manteca a lot because it does exactly that. It modernizes it, it anglifies it, it puts a big old dollop of grated <laughs> cheese on top of everything, which seems to be the kind of the Anglo way, but I'm happy with that. Back at home, I love the old trattorias and Osteria Antica Sere has a special place in my heart because it's quite close to my my parents' home in Turin and it's a special little place hidden away in a courtyard and it kind of does all the things that nostalgic food should do to you. Best dish, best dish there? I haven't been in a while, so I hope that my knowledge of the menu is still up to scratch. But I would say you can never go wrong with Tallerina Ragù or Agnolotti al Plin. Here in London, again, I love eating... Asian food in London and one of my go-to and again like listeners across Asia will think that this is nothing special but I love Din Tai Fung here in London. It is so reliable, so consistently amazing. You go there, you always feel like you've just been teleported to Taipei. Like It's phenomenal. And I love that there are still some places in London that you can go to without a booking. And maybe you'll have to wait like 15, 20 minutes to go for a little walk and then you can still get a seat in that same vein. Koya is my go-to for, I haven't booked anywhere in Soho, what do I do? And you know that you can rely on that. I am a passionate advocate for South London's scene. One of the recent openings there that I think is tiny, tucked away, you wouldn't really know about it, but Mambo is phenomenal Malaysian food. In this like back of this kind of semi-retail space, it's kind of a pop-up. It's phenomenal and you just have to trust your way through Peckham to find it. Some good recommendations. Keep your powder dry though, Kerry. Don't want to give away too many of your personal favourites this early in the menu journey. Listen, the menu covers hospitality. We've discussed it. Food, we've covered a lot. But also beverage. Don't forget the B in F&B. What about drinking? Again, probably a few cliches about the way that Italians enjoy their drinks. What kind of a drinker are you, Chiara? 
Again, multifaceted. <laughs> I like that. <laughs> well, because there's always something for a different occasion. I pride myself for being able to recommend places to anyone who will come to me with in need of inspiration for London tips. And I will just ask them, like, how many people would you fancy? What kind of price range? You know, I am like an encyclopedia. With drinking... Okay, so if we're talking beer, and I think it's important to pay homage to London pubs, I have a soft spot for the French house. Again, not a secret, but this hallowed institution in Soho. I love that it's famous, but again, you can go and you can still find a seat there. I love that they do half pints or primarily half pints because that's kind of the Mediterranean in me that, again, wants to have a smaller chilled beverage to kind of get through. Of course... I am partial to wine, but I'm not an Italian obsessive in wine at all. I'm very open to international labels, I should say. And I'm very happy to have jumped quite enthusiastically on the natural wine bandwagon. I always drink very well at Primeur with a side of sardines. Mm. (laughs) And then I think cocktail-wise, I grew up in the country that revels in aperitivo every night. So there's something to the casualness of aperitivo that always stays with me when it comes to kind of cocktail drinking. But I don't mind a cheeky, smoky end of night kind of nightcap. Only last night I was at The Bearing, a fairly new pub in East London, and they brought over the dessert menu. And I just decided to have an old fashioned instead, because I think that a cocktail can do that for you. And it, I, I'm happy to report it was really delicious and it felt like a proper pudding. As I said earlier, credentials approved, rosettes issued, Chiara. I'm sure our listeners are in eminently good hands. I feel like now I should pass. It's a bit like, you know, that moment where I mean, your dad for the first time passes you the wine list, right? <laughs> I should hand over to you. Uh, wish you good fortune with your stewardship of the menu. The programme couldn't be in better hands. And I say, Chiara Rimela, buon appetit. Or rather, should we say, buon appetito. And now I'm very happy to introduce you to my first food and drink stories. We head to Singapore, where last year Lidiana Yana Kay was appointed the head bartender at renowned bar Atlas. Known for its rich culinary traditions and grand art deco interiors, Atlas is routinely ranked amongst Asia's top spots for a cocktail. Monocle's Naomi Xu Elegant met Yana in the eye-catching, glimmering lobby to try a drink and hear more. I actually have a background in advertising. And I did that for three years and I didn't enjoy it at all. Maybe because I wasn't very good at it, I don't know. But I just felt like I couldn't express myself creatively where I work. So I quit my job in advertising and I pursued my degree. And while I was doing that, I worked in a cafe. And that was when I was introduced to like my first legit cocktail bar. And I immediately fell in love with it. Like I love like, the whole theatrics of it like I love seeing how they were being creative with like mixing flavors and I really wanted to do that but I never got the opportunity to work in a bar because everybody wanted like someone with experience so I kind of gave up on that until one day one of my friends told me that Atlas was looking for a barista I googled it I did some research and I was like okay this is my leg in the door right 
And then six months later, I eventually got moved to the bar team. Just because like, while I was working as a barista, I always get scheduled as the nighttime barista. And truth is, nobody drinks coffee past 6pm. And I became like the unofficial bar back. And I was, that was when I learned everything. Like every day I came to work with like a set of like questions and maybe I was like annoying the bartender a bit like uh, how do you shake cocktails what's this what's gin and that's how I got my start and then really slowly just worked my way up like I had to start from scratch I had to really learn how to like prep do the mise en place learn batching I had to learn all the different kinds of spirits and then I had to learn how to like mix flavors together and then six years later, who knew I'm now the head bartender at Atlas and it's still a very surreal moment. Like every time I retell this story, I just still cannot believe it. Like that was my journey and this is where I am now. Can you describe what Atlas is like as a bar? Because it's quite unique in Singapore. So we're sitting in it right now and I think even the lobby itself is so unique. Atlas is molded after 1920s Art Deco European lobby bar, like a hotel lobby bar. So that's kind of like the service and the kind of drinks that we make. Like we really go back to like the classics and we really focus on like high touch service. It can come across as a bit rigid but it really goes with like our brand but then like we bring in some element of fun especially when you are set at the bar like you get to have conversations with the bartender and I think anywhere you go like the bar seats is always like the best place to sit because you get to watch us and we have conversations with you. I'm sure you would hate for me to ask your favourite cocktail on, on the current menu but what's maybe a couple that you really would like to highlight to show the uniqueness of the menu one cocktail that i'm super obsessed with and i recommend it to people is called the ode to odyssey it was very ambitious of me to put this drink on the menu because this drink is inspired by a classic called the ramos gin feast and you can ask any bartender out there and they can tell you that they do not like making that drink and for me to put that drink on the menu was very ambitious a little bit insane i would say because like the history of that cocktail is that just to shake that cocktail you would need like six bartenders to shake it for six minutes before you get like a nice froth and like a thick foam on top of the drink but this is definitely one of my favorite drinks because we've managed to take a classic and we've made it our own and we've reinvented it in a way and we've actually simplified the way of making it like it doesn't take 24 minutes to make that cocktail we've brought it down to like four minutes so that's great Okay, so I'm gonna make the Ode to Odyssey for you. We're gonna start with chocolate bitters. And the secret ingredient here is the Epsom. So for this drink, we're gonna add the punch batch. So in here we have a toasted raisin syrup that we made at home in here you know this uh, there's a bit of bloody shiraz gin there's ruby port in here as well and a bit of citrus so i want to shake it until most of the ice is already broken
The very important part of the drink is the soda. So the soda, when it reacts with the cream and the froth, it actually will start to rise. So we don't serve it with a straw because we want our guests to have like that milk stash basically. But that's the whole fun of like drinking this cocktail. So Ode to Odyssey, here you go. You are listening to The Menu. Up next, it's time for the week's food and drink headlines. Here is Monocle's Monica Lillis. Top leaders from around the world will be served a fully vegetarian menu at the G20 Summit. The event, which is happening in India's capital of Delhi this week, will feature dishes to represent the nation's rich culinary traditions. Menu items will include innovative millet-based dishes and local street food specialities. This week, the French government published a decree banning meaty terms such as steak or grill being used to describe plant-based products. Agriculture Minister Mark Fesno reasoned that this new law would increase transparency and help shoppers who are confused by the notion of vegetarian meat. France remains a predominantly meat-eating nation with the highest beef and veal consumption per inhabitant in Europe. And finally, this week, the Italian city of Parma held their fourth edition of the Cena del Mille, or Dinner of the Thousand. The historic centre of the city was transformed into a gourmet restaurant with over 400 tables and welcomed a 1,000 guests. The success of the event raised €20,000 from ticket sales, which will be donated to a local charity. Those are the week's food and drink headlines. Now back to Chiara. Thanks, Monica. You are with Monocle Radio. Nature lovers often flock to the San Juan Islands, an archipelago halfway between Seattle and Vancouver. Whether hiking the trails, strolling the beaches or navigating the waters, visitors are enthralled by the lush forests and secluded saltwater coves. Chefs too have come to appreciate the rural character of this island chain, home to small family farms, fishers and shellfish growers. Only four of the hundreds of islands in the San Juans are served by passenger ferry. One of them, Orcas Island, has acquired a deserved reputation for farm and sea-to-table dining. Matia Kitchen is the most talked-about restaurant on Orcas. It's named after a nearby uninhabited island, but its nightly dinner service is certainly well-inhabited after it landed on the New York Times list of the 50 best restaurants in the United States in 2022. Monocle's Gregory Scruggs recently jumped on the ferry to meet Matia's general manager, Drew Downing. I run Mesha Kitchen with my business partner, Avery Adams, on Orcas Island. Orcas is located in about as far northwest in the U.S. as you can get. Our restaurant's been open for two years, and Avery and I founded Mesha Dinner Series in 2016, offering pop-ups and catering and consulting and things of that nature. Mesha as a restaurant is a brick-and-mortar, opened two years ago. And we're in our second location now and about to open another Italian-inspired concept in the same building. We have a chef's counter of seven seats that offers tasting menus every night. And in the dining room, we also have 20 seats that offer a la carte dining every night. Those two systems operate simultaneously Can you tell me how you and Avery got to know each other, a little bit about both of your backgrounds in the restaurant industry, and when, where, and how they intersected? I grew up in Seattle. I worked in restaurants pretty much my whole life. I knew that I wanted to open a restaurant at a dangerously young age. I 
spent the majority of my career in Seattle seeking mentors and about 10 years ago reached a point in my life when I decided that I wanted to stop looking for mentorship and start looking for partnership. I was at a point in my life when I said, I've traveled all over the world, I've traveled all over the United States, and I don't have anything keeping me anywhere. Where would I want to be? Where would I want to set my roots? Orcas Island was the thing that came to mind immediately. Orcas Island is dotted with organic farms. There's two world-class shellfish farms here. The fisheries are amazing. And, you know, as is always the case, you know, you come for the beaches and you stay for the community. I met Avery Adams working basically my first kitchen job. Him and I were cooking right next to each other. Avery grew up in the San Juans. He's through and through San Juan Islander. He was born on the ferry, for God's sakes. And he spent his early life foraging product around here and really engaging with local farms. His parents were fishers in Alaska, and he has all of the sort of local endemic knowledge that somebody might need to be a successful chef up here. He had exactly the skill sets that I did not, and vice versa. He's one of the most creative, talented chefs I've ever met in my life, and it was just serendipity. So he asked me one day if I wanted to run the front of house piece of a pop-up that he was planning. I said yes. And that was kind of it. Misha Dinner Series was started in 2016. And pretty fly-by-night operation. We were both working full-time jobs in kitchens. I was bartending and still managing the hostel. And we would just get off work and rent a commissary kitchen and prep from you know, 1 a.m. to 6 a.m. and pack all that up and go back to work the next day. And over the course of the following four years, we did about 50 pop-ups, mostly in the San Juan Islands and a little bit in Seattle. The idea was always to become a restaurant, but in this community, you can't just go shopping for restaurants. It's not a big city. You sort of have to have a lot of luck. Mesha opened in its first location, May 5th, 2021, and, you know, essentially the nature of the workforce up here is hire all your friends and do your best. So it just so happened that, you know, our friend group, both on Orcas Island and further afield, were all interested in working for us and hyper-talented and really motivated. What types of produce grow here, grow well, that are among your exciting ingredients this time of the year? And likewise, in the waters or foraging out in the woods, can you give our listeners a sense of what might end up on their plate that is grown or harvested, foraged off this land? My restaurant life in Seattle led me to believe that I was eating the best food around and the naive nature of that when I arrived on Orcas Island became apparent very quickly. I was shocked by things like tomatoes and pork chops and turnips and radishes. I remember so many times in my first few years here thinking, I've never really eaten a tomato before. (laughs) So we have the opportunity of both working with small-scale organic farmers that are bringing us I mean, fresh daily, some of the best things that I've ever seen, as well as obviously fisheries, 
from all over these waters, including but not limited to the best oysters that I've ever had in my life from both Judd Cove and Buck Bay Shellfish Farm here on Orcas. The opportunity that I have had recently to engage with the true nature of this place in the world and the product that it brings about has really led me to believe that the Pacific Northwest is on the verge of creating some of the best restaurants in the world. The opportunity to both have the constraints of a season as well as just the natural bounty of the waters here is an opportunity for chefs to really express themselves. You know, if you want to think of restaurants moving forward in general, globally, as taking more care for locality and seasonality, because this place is so seasonal in so many ways, both in climate and tourism, in every way you could possibly imagine, the more seasonality a place experiences, the more opportunity there is to express each individual season. And so Mesha Kitchen expresses its seasonality not just as spring, summer, fall, winter. We're talking daily menu changes based on products that are available from farms to the extent to which we may buy radishes from a farm and sell all of those radishes in one night and go back to that farmer and that farmer will say that was all my radishes what would you like to move on to next this is what's fresh this is what i have for you avery adams our chef and my business partner is particularly skilled and qualified at understanding the seasonality of the products and of this place and being able to integrate that into a dish that really does feel like both a time and a place. Aver will say over and over again that Mesha is his love letter to the San Juan Islands. I haven't seen anybody generate the number of individually concepted dishes that I've seen in the last eight years of working with him. I mean, we're talking in the tens of thousands of individually concepted dishes based on the constantly rotating product that's coming through our back door. And I haven't seen a miss yet. <laughs> and that's all for this edition of The Menu. Remember that we are back with a new episode again on Friday at 2000 London time. That's midday in San Francisco. And don't forget to tune into our spin-off show, Food Neighborhoods, for a tour of some of the world's tastiest destinations. I am Chiara Rimella. The program was produced by Monica Lillis and our studio engineers were Tamsin Howard and David Stevens. Once again, we finished this program with a dinner soundtrack recommendation. Here is Pino D'Angio with Un po' d'uva e un liquore. Thanks for listening and until next week. Un po' d'uva e un liquore, i tuoi passi sulle scale. 